Everyone gets to a point when they're succeeding in business that they get to the point where they have enough. Even if you're someone who loves toys and houses and stuff like that, eventually you have enough cars, you have enough food to eat, you have a vacation home or two. Like you just buying things doesn't get you excited anymore. What gets you excited is making lasting impact in people's lives. This can't be it. There has to be more. Wait, am I crazy? No. If you're yearning for more and working hard to make your dreams a reality, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Dreamcatchers. It's the only show committed to helping you self-actualize and then transcend, leaving you with the legacy you've always desired. Listen in on conversations with successful philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and founders every week as we connect with them for inspiration, education, and direction. Your host, Jerome Myers, is here to help you exit the matrix and transform into a leader of your own revolution. The question is, do you believe your dreams should be real? Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome, and we've done some stuff international here lately, but I decided we'd hop over a state and check in Tennessee and meet my man, Chad Sutton. Chad, how are you, brother? Man, Jerome, it's good to be alive. Good to be learning lessons we're learning today, seeing things people haven't seen in 50 years. So I'm very blessed for all the seminars the good Lord is putting in my path. But uh, yeah, good to be here today, brother. Good to be here. Mm-hmm. You'll learn that a seminar for a real estate investor means that they're learning stuff in the deals they have going on. And Chad is one of those folks I, I met. I first learned of Chad through the man Maurice Villagin, the man, the myth, the legend. Uh, He was telling me about this rocket scientist that he partnered up with who was doing all the analytics on the multifamily deals they were buying around the country. And then in a flash of an eye, it seems like hundreds of millions of dollars of real estate have been purchased and deals have gone full cycles and big checks have been written. And so I I love to start the show with, so Chad, you had an exit. Yes, I've had a couple of exits. I've had exit from corporate America, which was a unique story we can go into. And we have gone full cycle on, good Lord, six deals with two in process right now. Even in the market today, we're still able to exit cleanly, which is pretty great. So you went straight to exit one. I don't know, maybe I'm throwing softballs today, but exit (laughs) one is breaking those golden handcuffs, is leaving behind the world of being an employee. It's leaving behind corporate America for most people. And so- Tell us a little bit about your corporate career. Yeah. So I feel like I've lived a lot of lives at this point, Jerome. I'm 35 years old. I'm still a young man. And I grew up playing with Legos and director sets and all that kind of stuff. So the world told me to be an engineer. I became an engineer. I got through some really cool stuff. I went through a master's degree program in engineering at the University of Cincinnati, undergrad at the University of Tennessee, great school. And I got to, folks, I got to work for NASA. I got to work for GE. I got to design smoke and fire hardware, like like rocket engines and aircraft engines and things that explode. It was really cool. Did a lot of really neat stuff. And look, I mean, to to make a long story very short, we have a lot to get into today. About four or five years into this career, I looked to my left and I looked to my right at my peers and I was like, you know what? I am so specialized. I am an aeronautical combustion design engineer. There's literally three companies in the world that I can work for and I already worked for one of them. I was so specialized and I was like, wow, I don't want to be this tied to this career. Like I'm going to be really good at this for the next 20 years. Is that what I want to do? And not to mention, I had a few patents and, and that like I, I had a couple of patents that really put us into a great market share position in this technology. And I got about a thousand bucks and an attaboy smack on the rear end, go do it again. I'm like, wow, that doesn't really make sense. 
So you start to realize that your your rewards in life are, are commensurate with the degree of difficulty of what you do and how hard it is to replace you. That's said by my friend Earl Nightingale, who's no longer with us. Look him up on YouTube if you haven't heard him before. But look, I, I got very fortunate. You remember when GE's stock price went from like 50 bucks to like five overnight and people quit getting scary. dividends? It was a big time. I got the fortunate endeavor to get to travel the world for the next several years. And like, literally I got to fix the profit and loss statement at multiple companies that GE owned and like figure out just, it was, how do you make things more cost efficient, but still deliver the same value? So I got a lot of experience in business doing that for like literally every country in the world. I got to visit on the GE Amex. It was a great business experience, but you know what, where it ended folks was that led to a corporate executive position. I was a young executive, no direct reports, but I did have a kind of a horizontal. If, if you understand matrix organizations, you have the vertical where people work for you and you have the horizontal where they don't work for you, but you influence them. I was kind of a horizontal executive and I, I influenced purchasing teams and design teams around the world. And the whole idea was how do you work hand in hand with engineering to buy a more efficient product from the supplier? But the problem is, Jerome, my job was to take everything from my suppliers. My job was to get the smallest profit margin out of them and have bulk buy spin. And I could swing their production by just stroking a check one or different direction. And so it was a very hard job because ethically and morally, it didn't align with me. Like I would have to be the guy who went and we used to do these things called hotel bids. We'd invite all our suppliers to this great event we're throwing at a hotel. And during the day, we would have pricing negotiations for the next year. And it was quite literally like they have to figure out how to drop their margin on the fly. And man, I was so good at it, dude. I got like 30% cost out of the product one year, but it comes at the expense of those working in the shops. And I had to go visit those shops and look them in the eye. And it was just despicable to me, man. For me to win, others had to lose and I hated it. So that's where the exit started to happen. I realized that, look, man, I've got the golden handcuffs. Sure, I was designing things with big company resources, but you know, there were 10 guys lined up to take my job and I, I wasn't secure and my value wasn't really being compensated for. And it was like, okay, well, let me go try this. So I broadened very much and I became an executive and did all that kind of stuff and did very well there. But for me to win, others had to lose, Jerome. And so where the handcuffs get broken, Around 2016, at the same time, my grandfather fell ill. Now, this is a big Texas man. This is a, it was a huge influence in my life. I actually lived at their house for the first five years of my life before my mom met who I called my dad, who was also a great influence in my life. He's still around. But look, man, he, he invested in real estate. He had like 70 single family properties. He and my grandmother did. And when he passed away, my aunt Kim, who is director of asset management for Quattro Capital now, took over that business. And this was around the same time where I'm asking questions like, why am I doing all this great work and like making a buck 20 a year? Like it's not, this this doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, I've saved, I've literally saved billions of dollars for this company and like, that's all I'm getting. And so all that's starting to happen and I'm realizing, okay, as I'm reading all these books, real estate is a common denominator and all that kind of stuff. And here's this family business. And over the first year of the family business, Kim sold some things, bought some things, invested in some things that we had and have the portfolio, tripled the value, tripled the income in a year. And so we're like, okay, there's something to this. And look, more millionaires have been made from real estate in this country than any other asset. So that's kind of where the family business started to expand and my demise and corporate started to happen, my self-demise, because I just, I, I didn't like that for me to win, others had to lose. And in real estate, that's not the case. For me to win, everyone gets to win. And it was around that time that I broke the handcuffs. Wow. So you saw firsthand somebody doing it a different way. Yes. And, Fortunately, my family. And I mean, a lot of people don't ever have that exposure. And so was your aunt always an entrepreneur or, I mean, I guess 
I guess you can call it entrepreneur. I mean, she's in the family yeah. business, right? But was she there and like willing and dealing or did she have a job at some point and she left that in order to move into the real estate space? Yeah. So Kim is an impressive woman. She was very career driven for most of my life. And honestly, in my young years, we I'd see her once or twice a year, right? Because she was always traveling the world. She was with major companies like Northrop Grumman, IBM. Like back when we were putting data centers around the world for the first time, she was like leading that charge. Like so she's a massive corporate executive running billion dollar projects in the IT industry, infrastructure wise. And over time that wore down on her. So eventually she gets to a point in her career where she's like, I want to start a business. And so she went and started an internet web presence company. They were doing all the right things, but the problem is that hit during the dot-com bust. And so all of a sudden it was not a good time to be building websites and such. So that worked for a while, but never really had the exit she dreamed of. So she went back to work years later. And interestingly, she crushed it for many years until her body finally said enough. She was working way too much and finally she had to step away. And so she actually stepped away after serving for the state of Texas on the IT side of things, took a couple of years to just kind of rediscover. And that's around the time that my grandfather fell sick, her father. And fortunately, not having that massive job, she was able to be there in the end and at that time decided to take over the family business because her mother, my grandmother, wanted to be in retirement at this point and, and didn't want to continue running it either. So it was it was right place, right time, I think, where she was not in corporate. And I'm probably, I'm missing so many elements of the story that she can tell so much better than I can. But yes, very much a talented corporate woman who had an entrepreneurial hair and then was more ready and willing to take over the family business when the time was right. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. The exposure, I think, is so important because it's the thing that lets us know that it's possible. And I think so many of us just, if we don't have exposure, then we've got to find a way to get to it. And that's part of the reason why we have this podcast. And so how did you build your, I assume you built some type of exit plan. You're an engineer. I imagine things are planned out. You don't just say, hey, I'm over this. I'm just walking out. So what right. did you do in order to prepare yourself to walk out of the $120,000 a year job that you had or something north of that? Yeah, at the time it got to be about a buck 50, give or take. I had a very regimented plan. You're right. I'm analytical. I was an engineer, a recovering engineer at the time. I was more on the business side, but still recovering from those tendencies. And I had built a good plan. I was like, okay, well, here's what we do. I go buy this many buildings, replace my cash flow. And then once my cash flow equates to what I'm making, I walk away. Clear plan, right? Very logical. Let me tell you, that ain't what happened. What actually happened, the world has different plans. You want to hear the good Lord laugh, tell them your plans. I bought my first property in 2019, my first. Now, my partners on that had been in real estate, the partners in Quattro, most of them had been in real estate since prior to 2008. So that was great to have that experience. But my first property that we pulled together was in 2019. And it was a 35 unit property, good clean asset, Knoxville, Tennessee, a market I knew very well because I went to school there. And that was the first one where I was like, okay, well, Let's get proof of concept. Let's make, and we used our own money for this. We didn't syndicate, didn't borrow what well, we borrowed for debt, but we used our own money. And we said, let's figure this out. Let's make sure that we know how to operate it. Let's make sure we know how to execute the plan we're talking about, get work done. And it was working pretty well. So we went and bought two or three more of them pretty quickly. I guess it was a portfolio of three that we bought next. And those were kind of working pretty well, but nothing was cash flowing that well yet. I mean, I had partners and it was still early. And as you all know, value adds just don't cash flow well. You think they will, they just don't out of the gate. It takes time and cash and anyway, so all those things. But I could see it working. 
Well, then this mystical thing called an eviction moratorium shows up when COVID hits, right? And we all remember 2020. And the problem is, and, and when I, I basically had a supply chain executive job. So, and I was dealing with Asia and Europe and, and every, Russia and everywhere in between. I saw COVID coming three months in advance. And of course, even watching it hop from land to land, we're all, I'm still in ignorance, like it's not coming here, but we'll be fine. As I watch it go from China to Norway to Europe, to, like it just works its way over. It's supply chains are shutting down. Like, nah, it's not going to hit us. It's not going to hit us. Well, it hit us, right? And once it landed on our shores, even before that, my supply chain role was now taking 20 hours a day because I had to figure out how to move product, how to keep production going. Like China shut down. That was a major supplier for us. Then Europe started to shut down, major supplier for us, major manufacturing plants. So that job is now taking 20 plus hours a day. My real estate business all of a sudden started taking many hours a day because it's like, if you remember back in this time, it's like, oh my gosh, like what is an eviction moratorium? Are people going to pay rent? How do we need to be sanitizing hallways? Like all this stuff we had to figure out in a hurry. And I was forced to make a choice because, so I had my plan, I was executing my plan, but you know, the good Lord had other plans. And sometimes what you need is a swift kick in the rear end to make the choice and make the jump. And that's what I had to do because it was going to be, okay, I have to focus on this job. At this point, I can't just do Pareto's law and do 20% of the work to get 80% of the results like I was doing. I've got to like solve major problems here in this in this organization. And the same thing was happening in real estate. Well, at that time, I knew I didn't want to be doing this corporate thing long-term. I knew the real estate world was working. We had an, enough. Uh, we were going to still take a hit with my salary loss, but I had enough and I was able to, to liquidate some retirement stuff via the CARES Act and all sorts of stuff to give myself some cushion and have some investing money. And I took a jump. I, I believed in myself enough. And I, against my better, you know, my anal tendencies, I made a jump. And it was like, I, I could just tell the Lord was telling me to do this. And it was like, you're never going to be happy here. You feel like, and it, it, more so, I told you that others had to lose for me to win. It became more so that way in COVID. Right. And I got to the point where management just wasn't hearing me. It was like they're trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. And I'm trying to explain I couldn't do what they're trying to do. We need to do it this way. And it's like it was a bad time at that corporation. And look, I made a jump and I never looked back. And the business exploded 10x in the next year. Whoa. That's so, where the massive growth you're talking about happened. It was after I left corporate and could really focus on building this business. That's where we all exploded. And so break that down for me because you go from, I'm just testing the concept to yeah. 10x growth. What, what was it truly just you had the time to invest or allocate? Or what was the difference? Yeah. So the, the, a couple of differences. One, and look, I'm not telling people to just go quit their job and don't do this on the side because you really can't do this on the side and do well. I was able to adjust and I, I knew I was going to be able to eat. I wasn't going to like, okay, my money's gone and now I'm like paycheck to paycheck. Like I knew I was able to have some reserves and to eat and to get through this. So don't just go quit your job on a whim because you feel awesome. Like it, it may take longer than you think. But at this point, I recognize that I can't do both. And I recognize the potential of what we were doing over here. And so how did it get better? Any venture you're in, if you think you're going to crush the competition part-time, you're solely mistaken because there's always someone out there who's going to spend 20 hours a day plus to beat you. Okay. And I realized that. And look, I also knew that 10X is easier than 2X. And, and I, I hadn't read that book at the time, so I'm stealing that title. But it, to go to scale, to add zeros, it is easier than just doubling. 
And so how did we do it, right? At first, what, the thing we loved about the commercial real estate space, specifically multifamily, was A, supply and demand was massively out of balance. So we had good supply and demand metrics that helped us you know, succeed in these things. This is when all waters were rising, no matter what. And we also knew that, okay, if I can do this for a 20-unit building, I can do the same thing for a 200-unit building plus some people, right? It's like it was very scalable. And so what we were able to do, all we had to figure out, because we had the deal flow, we were able to pick up the deal flow. And then it was, okay, how fast can we execute on these things? And of course, having more time personally helped, but we were very smart with systems and processes. We're like, okay, well, if we're going to, like, we want to buy five deals at a time, but not at the same time, but series. You're working on five deals in different phases of the, of the pipeline, different bubbles in the snake, if you will. And so by, by having the best in class diligence teams, by having the best in class management companies, which we leveled up over time, having a legal process in place, once you start to process out all this stuff and figure out, okay, like process out how you money raise. Once we figured out the assembly line, because it's like once we focused on the business and knew we were going to scale it, it was all about the assembly line. And once you had those pieces, you could really start to crank the machine. And that machine then became capable of going from a 35 unit building to a 70 unit building to a 110 unit building to a 240 unit building. And we just, then that's where the the scale really began to happen. And as, as all of your listeners know, and in multifamily, it's typically more, you have better economies of scale with 200 units than you do with 35. And so the profits started to grow, right? And so that, that's really how we took off was we built a model that was scalable and being able to buy bigger and bigger assets with that model then allowed the numbers to get bigger and bigger. And that's where we are today. Well, it's interesting. And we kind of skipped over exit number two, which is being chief everything officer, CEO. One we felt that too, brother. <laughs> so let's go back. We talked about managing the managers and having people in place and making the process go because that's really the only way you scale. Let's go back to being chief everything officer. You're fresh out of corporate and you're doing the do. You're doing everything. And yeah. you knew the problem that you would solve, which was housing people. You knew there was a need for it just kind of by looking around and seeing what your family had been doing. But tell me about that experience for you, because I think it's one of the things that a lot of people are disillusioned about. You talked about the 20 hour day, and I don't think most people, when they become entrepreneur, expect to go to that period that's working from five to nine. They think, oh, well, I'll just be a nine to five person like I was in my, my job. And so can we dig into exit number two a little bit and really give people a peek inside and what that is and why it is? Yeah, we got to focus on that. And look, the challenge is you're right. And it, it takes massive talent to be able to, and I don't have this, by the way, it takes massive talent to be able to say, okay, I know what needs to happen at the high level and I'm going to go put experts in place who can own and figure all that out rather than I got to do it myself first and then know what to hire, Right. I don't have that gift. I never have. Maybe I'll develop it one day. But the way the business started, we bootstrapped everything. We, gosh, we built our own website. We did every aspect of the due diligence ourselves. We didn't know you could hire people for a lot of this stuff. We just didn't know, right? And so when we're acquiring things, we were trying to cut down on legal bills. So we would like get recommended changes and make changes to things that don't do this, by the way. We were getting recommended changes and making changes. And so we were literally touching everything to, to bootstrap as much cost as we could. We were doing our own marketing. We were, we, when we got into diligence, we were doing all the videoing. We were doing all the unit walks. We were, I mean, all the stuff we were doing and cataloging. And we did a decent enough job. I and mean, we got the data that we needed. We mitigated our risk. 
eventually you figure out that, okay, everyone has the same 168 hours in a week. That's the number I want all of you to remember is 168. Richard Branson, Elon Musk, Jerome Myers, Chad Sutton, we all have the same 168 hours in the week. And it's how do you leverage your money for more time to not be like, that's how you figure out how to run 500 businesses or whatever it is Richard Branson has without like, you must think, oh my gosh, he runs 500 businesses. That guy's probably on meetings all the time. And like, no, he's not. He spends a lot of time skiing and stuff, but he's put experts in place who he can trust to run certain aspects. And he has his touch points to see so he can read his dials. I'll tell you, that's the organization we're building. I'll tell you, we're not there yet, but it ta- it's an evolution because what you have to do is realize, okay, well, let's just go to the diligence process. Who can I leverage? There's a great book called Who Not How by Dan Sullivan. I I love that book. It's great because it flips your mindset on. It's not how do I get all this done? It's who can I get to help me do it? And what processes do they have to follow? So how did we start to scale this business? I'm just going to focus on the due diligence process because that was a massive amount of work. When you're buying a property, there's a lot to do. and, And there's a lot of teams you have to instill to do it. Just think about walking the property. If I can go bring a, a professional management company with me and a professional construction management company with me and different subcontractors to mitigate all those risks, like I got a guy walking the roofs, I got two teams of three walking the buildings, I can get through a 250 unit building in a day now because I have teams of people walking them. They have systems, they have a software they use to catalog everything in a very recognizable manner. So we know what the data looks like. We have pricing models behind it. All that kind of stuff where you start to leverage other people's know-how and other people's time to get through it. Otherwise, it would take me a week to do diligence on a 250-unit building. I couldn't do it. I could do that on a 35-unit building, right, in in a day or two. But so for us, and, and this is a weakness, I think, that we had to go through all the things first and understand what had to be done before we could really delegate it. If you have the gift of being able to say, well, here's kind of high level what needs to be done. Let's go, let me go get, let me go either find the experts who know how to do this or get someone to take ownership and get them to figure it out for you. That's how you get here faster. So I'd say we're, we've done a lot of that. We've put the systems in place, the people in place, and we're still getting to the point to where, like where, where I'm not yet, and this is maybe a future exit, but where we aren't yet is where I can only spend 10 hours a week on this company and it exists whether I'm skiing on a mountain or not. Right. I'm not there yet. We have a lot of support and we've improved much in this area, but it's still a full time job for all five of us right now, candidly. Yeah. That's exit four, which is installing the COO and getting the freedom from the day to day and truly becoming the CEO or the leadership T or co CEOs or however you want to label it for the partnership. And so, but what's really cool about what you've done is. You didn't have to go through four and five in order to get the exit six, which is hitting that pot of yeah. gold and selling a piece, or I, I guess we could call each property a business. Yeah. Right. And so you sold a business that you purchased. And so you saw, you mentioned earlier that you saw Kim sell some stuff and make a, a lot of money from a real estate standpoint. And so. When did you know that it was real that like you could sell your complex and really realize a big return? Because there's a whole lot of theory, right? There's a whole lot of multifamily educators out there telling people that this is possible and convincing them to go into programs to quit their job by buying a building. But I think there's a point for everybody on this journey where they find out that this is not just theory, but it's actually a real thing. 
Yeah. And I mentioned that, so the first property we bought together, we still have, but the second, third, and fourth, we sold. And that, that was a portfolio. It was an older building, an older set of buildings. And we were able to come in and really, I mean, we're talking the things were renting at five, 600 bucks that we, we sold it when they were renting at 850. So we were able to make a massive jump on this with a little bit of work and cleaning up the community and things of that sort. But what's beautiful about a private equity company or a real estate syndication company or something like that is there are some groups that do this, but unless you kind of run out of a fund structure, which we're doing now, it's not near as easy to just sell like Quattro Capital. Like I'm not of the mindset of like, okay, I built Quattro Capital as a software company and I'm looking for a big exit at the end where I sell the whole thing. The beautiful thing is, and, and the, the challenge with that is the equity you give away in the beginning of a, of a company is usually the most expensive, right? Because you're probably giving someone 20 or 30% to come in and own a massive division and grow it. Well, the beautiful thing about this is my company, Quattro Capital, we own sub-businesses, as you mentioned. They're all, they're, they're literally all structured as an LLC that own the asset, right? And that it has real estate behind it, but it is an operating business where customers or residents pay me money to live in my building. We have some expenses and we have net income. I mean, it's a business. And so the beautiful thing is you can sell those businesses individually as you want. And so if I'm not happy with a deal structure I did in the beginning, uh, well, it's only going to last as long as till I sell that building. And so that was the beautiful thing is I'm nowhere near close to thinking about selling Quattro Capital, which I, we could do someday probably mm -hmm. if we had made it valuable to a private equity firm. But we have sold assets. And the first time we actually, like we decided, okay, well, these assets are kind of old. We've had some plumbing problems. We've done a lot of great work on the NOI, but do we really want to keep these or not? Let's see what they're worth. Then we went to market and saw what they were worth. Like, oh my gosh, not only has the cap rate compressed, which is the, the baseline measure for what you, how you can capitalize an income stream, but we've increased that income stream drastically, like 40%. So we, from where we bought these things at like 50 a door, $50,000 $50, per unit, we wound up selling them at, I think it was a blended average of 93 or 94,000 a door. So we literally doubled the value of the assets in about 18 months. Like this was not a long hold. And so we have some mentors who suggested, look, get some wins under your belt because the biggest thing that private equity cares about and investors care about is that you've gone full cycle and you can do what you say you're going to do. So we could have kept them in cash flow and done well, but we chose as a partnership team to sell the asset. And when that money came back in, I'll remember that was the first time I'd ever seen seven figures in bank accounts that we controlled, not investor money. We'd raised money before, but yeah. this was the first time where seven figures came in and we're like, wow, this is our money to do what we want to do with. And so you start to realize, okay, this, there's something to this. And, and, all, and the great thing is that was with a small portfolio. Add a zero to that and you start to talk about tens of millions, right? And so it, it's, it was so scalable and that was the ultimate proof of concept for like, all right, this, this, this is the thing. A lot of people want to unlock their ultimate potential but lack the strategy, support, and stamina necessary to achieve their major goals. They often try to overcome these challenges by trying to do it on their own, causing frustration, fatigue, and eventually failure. We have developed a model for a center life, aka the red pill, to help them bolster their beliefs, gain clarity on their path to success, and provide accountability as they take action on their goals. When they take the red pill, they rapidly accelerate attainment of their goals and begin to experience a life of significance and impact. Want to find out more? Hop over to JeromeMyers.co. Now, let's get back to the episode. So 
So did you have someone help you with the process of exiting? We did. So we, we have a board of advisors and we were very fortunate to leverage their expertise a little bit on like, how should we market it? How should we prepare it for marketing? Things of that sort. And folks, I would encourage you like establish a board of advisors and that can change over time. Sometimes you outgrow each other, but have third party objective people who can give you advice on things who you trust, who've been there, done that. You might have to pay them a little bit of money and give them some stake, whatever it is that they want, but it's valuable to have that. And then of course, on the sale, yes, we employed, by this time we were using experts. So we employed a brokerage team to sell the deal. We had professional management teams in place. We, we had uh, regional contractors in place who had done a lot of this work to get help us get ready for the sale. And so when we went to market, we had a very clean, beautiful asset that had clean financials. And there wasn't really a whole lot of, what you want to do is cancel the objections before they happen, right? And so there wasn't much that the buyer could say, oh, well, I don't believe this. Like, I was like, oh, I'll go look at the P&L. It's there. So what were your three things that went really well with the exits? Well, at the time, money was cheap. So the buyers were able to get fantastic financing that really justified or amplified our compressed cap rate assessments from the brokers. So that went very well. We were fortunate at that time to be able to get certainty of close when we picked a buyer. So there was competition. People were fighting over these very desirable assets and of small assets in a location of Knoxville where we'd already done the heavy lifting. So we were able to get good earnest money that gave us great confidence they were going to get it done. And then at the end of the day, we had the expert, I'll just say this generically, we had a good legal team in place. We had a good title company in place. And so like there were some objections that came up in diligence along the way, but everyone was knowledgeable enough to handle those objections and keep the sale on track. And so like, I definitely credit having good quality experts who are not just not can't just do what they're paid to do, but are the best at what they're paid to do and the best that I could afford rather, but they were very good in that price range. And they really made sure the transaction went smoothly so that we were able to capitalize because the worst thing that happens, and this is good and bad things about real estate or companies is they're highly illiquid. You can't just like, I can't just take a company or a piece of real estate out to the bank and cash in, right? I have to go through a process, whether it's a refinance or a sale, it's probably 30, 60, 90 days before that's going to happen of grueling diligence and people poking holes in it and being able to keep, to, to have it set up well for success there is no small feat. No, sir. Not at all. So what's one thing that didn't go well? And the exits. Let me think back to there. Well, okay. It is real estate. And so there's a hard asset to it. And I mentioned these were old assets. We had a major plumbing issue come around during the sale, and actually they found evidence of it that we didn't know, so it was a little bit embarrassing. But so we had to kind of field, they of course tried to come for the jugular on that and, and issue a retrade and all that, which we were able to, again, having the good team, we were able to quickly figure out, okay, we only have a couple of days to figure this out. Here's what they want. What's it worth to us? Can we fix it ourselves? How much is it going to cost to fix? How quickly can we fix it? And we were able to come up with a counter agreement that, look, we're just going to fix the problem and we're going to provide video streaming evidence or not streaming, but video documented evidence and all that from the expert that, that it's good. And so we were able to pull it off, but it, it was actually, it could have been a $50,000 problem if we accepted their retrade as it was, but we were able to get it fixed for about $15,000. It was a major cast iron trunk line for the drain line under the building. 
But because we had good relationships, local city contractors, not even regional, we were able to get it done very well for a minimal expenditure and keep the sale on track. But that was, I'd say being, and now I wouldn't bat an eyelash at that, Jerome, and that happens, but it was terrifying at the time. It was like, oh no, we're at the end and this thing is happening now. What do we do? And so sometimes those little trials, they just prepare you for bigger ones later. Yeah, man. It's the little twist at the end of the story. <laughs> you got to have I'll a little. No deal has no nothing going on wrong. And if you find one that does, watch out because it's coming. It'll be like a bus is going to hit you around the corner. All right. So you get the check or, or the wire hits the account. How do you feel? Oh, man, I got to go back there. Accomplished, I think. I mean, it was like, okay, this is real. We, we did it. And we're not done, but it was like, this has all been theory and numbers and spreadsheets and management trouble that we had to go through and all the things you learn. And then you get to the end and you're like, this really does work. If you, if you add value to an asset, I don't care what it is, real estate, business, whatever. If you add value to an asset and there's a market for it, it will sell. And when it sells, you will have bigger problems. You probably have tax problems, but it you have cash in the bank. And it was just like, it was this feeling of just like, I don't, I don't even think accomplishment's the right thing. It's just like fulfillment and gratitude and knowing I can do this, right? Because you kind of have imposter syndrome when you first walk out of corporate and think you're going to be this big entrepreneur and you're like, God, like there's so many points along the way where you're like, can I do this? Am, am I smart enough for this? What am I missing? And then you realize you can't. It sounds like you were validated. Validated. That's the right word. I was validated. There it is. All right. So I think you alluded to this, but was this the largest amount of money of your own that you had in your possession at the time? At the time it was. Yes. How'd you celebrate? <laughs> Doing very secular things, man. I, I, my It was around my birthday when this happened. So my wife took me out to a really nice dinner and she was like, I, this was really cool. And then kind of hit home because like it, any of you who try to do something different, and your spouse isn't doing it with you, sometimes it can be like, not only do you have imposter syndrome, but there may not be a lot of buy-in there. And it was just so cool because it was like officially, and she had buy-in before this, but this was like her acknowledgement of you crushed it. I, I believe in you. I know you can do it. And now go do 10 more. And it was like, it was just this validation from her that like, oh my gosh, this works and I see you. And there wasn't much beyond that because we all, we had a lot of other things going. I was like, all right, on to the next one. So you have to, folks, rem remember to celebrate. You got to celebrate the wins in life. But to that, that was huge to me because it was a validation of the concept and then validation from my spouse where it was like, okay, we, she believes in it too. Outstanding. How long did the feeling last? It's a good question. The accomplishment, achievement. That's how, a how great question. Around? So it lasted for a couple of months. You're kind of on this high of like, you don't have imposter syndrome. You feel like you can talk about this on podcast. You feel like you can actually have conversations with investors. Like, yeah, I, I just did this. What's up? And so you get a little cocky for a little while, which I think it then moderates and you come back to, to earth. But it, it really gave a renewed set of confidence. And I think that because this was in, I guess it was 2021 when we sold these assets. And this was in the time where we were really blowing up and it was like, you just, you had that confidence at that point. And so I think it, it probably lasted for probably the rest of the year, a good six months before it really wore off. But then I had confidence from other things. And so it was like a catalyst of like, okay, now we can go grow because we know we can do this beginning to end, you know? Now, this will be an interesting answer because you had other stuff going on, but did you find that the check scratched the edge for you or were you still seeking more? Definitely it scratched an itch. It scratched the small itch, but it created more itches, right? And so it was like 
that that was the itch of validation, the itch of replacing income and the itch of having enough to not have to worry about money. It wasn't there yet because the thing that people don't always realize is sure we did well on that deal, but we were still growing a business. We are still growing a business. Even at 200 million under management, we're still growing a business. And at, at the, you have to decide at, at what level you think enough is enough. And for us, I mean, we each have a personal goal of a million per year in recurring revenue. And, and that is not fees. We want that to be cash flow and equity, right? And so it takes time because as you're growing this and you're using other people's money, it's almost like a buy one, get one mentality. Like you're going to have, you're going to be working for the investors on most of your deals, right? And you're going to get some fees but they're going to get paid first and, and all that kind of stuff. And so it's like, you have to take the, you have to be disciplined enough to take the proceeds you make from syndicating a deal or using a fund for a deal and then put that into your own cash flow and asset, right? Where you're the primary investor. And so that's the approach Quattro has taken is it's like, a, so we have a Quattro portfolio and we have an investor portfolio where, where we manage it. And so it's like, you're working for the investor, but it's a buy one, get one mentality. I'm going to, I'm going to buy one here for the investor, work hard for them, crush it for them, and then take the rest. And then we go get one for ourselves. And so why am I saying all this? We have a goal, each of us, which is basically 5 million per year out of the business, right? To fund each one of us personally, there's five partners and we're going to get there. We're on track there, but we're not there yet. Right. And that's going to require over a billion under management. And so the problem is you can't just go buy a billion dollars in assets as the company that owns hundred million or even 50 or 2 million, right? You have to become the $100 million operator when you're only at 50 million. You have to become the $5 million operator when you're at one. And so there's a lot of investing in the company. This is the corporate growth. This is the company entrepreneurship side. You have to be able to invest in the who's and how's that you need to manage the portfolio you desire to have. And that's a stair step. You can't just go, like, I can't go from 200 million and go hire the team I need to manage a billion. Like, I don't have the funds for that. But there is an element in entrepreneurship of sometimes you have to spend money you don't quite have yet to get to the next income rung. And that's the risk in entrepreneurship is you can go too far too fast. And so what did it do? It created validation and it created a bigger itch that now I know what's possible and now I know I can scale and get there. And so it was enough for a while, but the personal goals we each of us has that, that keeps us driven and uh, there's more itches that need to be scratched to get there, if that makes any sense. No, it makes complete sense. It, what's really cool is you didn't sell the whole co. You sold a subsidiary of the whole co. A lot of times when we have folks that come on to the show, they sold whole co and they got the big exit, right? The one where they don't have to worry about any money anymore. And then they're asking questions like, what was it all for? Is this really it? And what now? And it turns out they're looking for the other F, not financial freedom, but the one called fulfillment. And they're also in a place where they're struggling with the six centers of doubts, the things that they're questioning. And so you talked about becoming a new person. And so the first center of doubt is self-image. And it's just how do you interact with the world? The next one is relationships. And that's followed by well, what do I do for work now that I sold the company that I built? And then there's always health, prosperity, and significance that follows. But the point is that they, when they sell whole co, basically sold a piece of, a big piece of their identity. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so you're still building to get to whole co. And it sounds like whole co will then 
pay each partner $5 million a year. You'll have a billion dollars in assets under management. And then the question will be, well, if I'm not trying to grow this or build this, what now? And when I was on your podcast a couple of weeks back, you talked about charity. You talked about what I call significance. And so how are you on your journey making the investments to make sure that you are significant and you're making a difference in the world? I love that we're going here, Jerome. And like, look, greater disparity has no man than he who reaches his goal only to find there's nothing beyond that, right? It's like when you climb Mount Everest, it's such a journey. And when you get to the top, if you don't have a plan after that, I mean, maybe it's something cool like getting on a helicopter and riding down or whatever it is. But if you don't have a plan after that, you're like, okay, I'm here. Now, now what? And you just have this sense of emptiness because it was part of your being to train and to fight and to climb and to fight off frostbite and to eat shitty cliff bars and whatever else you ate all the way up there. So you have to think about that. And like in my life, I am coached to have a a full rounded life, five areas of my life. So I I have goals for 10 years out always. And it's a rolling 10 years. When I'm a year down the road, I got to reset my 10 year goals, right? Because it's like you you have these 10 year master vision, three year goals that you're trying to hit. And then every quarter, there's 12 quarters in three years, but you're always making adjustments to get to those goals. And they're always evolving. But if you don't have an idea for your life, for what you want faith to look like, for what you want, if you're married, for me, it's faith, husband, father, fitness, and business. All those are the five areas of life that I choose to balance. And I have goals for every one of them. So, so it's important to be setting those goals, folks. And it's not, this isn't touchy feely, like have tactical ways to get there. We can go into all that. But to your point, how do we make sure that it's not just about the money in the end? Well, I believe everyone is truly charitable. The problem is some people have a scarcity mindset of, I need what I make to live, right? Well, I'm here to tell you, everyone gets to a point when they're succeeding in business that they get to the point where they have enough. You have like, even if you're someone who loves toys and houses and stuff like that, eventually you have enough cars, you have enough, enough food to eat. You have a vacation home or two. Like you just buying things doesn't get you excited anymore, right? What gets you excited is making lasting impact in people's lives. And so some people start coaching programs to give back that way. Some people mentor underprivileged people. Some people have charities that that develop housing or whatever. Like you start to develop how, like a sense of how do I do good while doing well? How do I put good back in the community? And for us, again, having strong mentors has been great here because we've been counseled early that you're going to reach that point. And so you better already know what it is that gets you excited. And then look, we have been, I'll say fortunate, but also burdened enough that we have taken over some really difficult properties. Mm-hmm. where you just, you see the disparity that some people have to live in. Like it, it's the world of generational poverty and it's no one's fault. It's that, okay, well, it's kind of demographically and politically created where like certain areas of the country just have underprivileged people where their parents were underprivileged and their parents and parents. And it just continues down because if you don't have the resources to get what it takes to succeed in this world, or even know what the hell it is to, to succeed in this world, you, you're stuck in the same rut. And so, and we've observed that in some of our older properties we've taken over with some of the people that we've have come into our care. And it's sad. It's sad because they don't have a way out and nobody cares about them. And so for us that we actually have put in place the Quattro Giving Fund with our new website launch that is, we have a massive facelift undergoing with our marketing team right now, should launch any day at the quattroway.com. You'll see our philanthropy page, which is one of our four pillars. And it's very important to have your core values and pillars and maybe work how you're going to do the, do better in the world into that. For us, we have people, property, profit, and philanthropy. That's a group of people coming together around a property 
to generate profits, some of which are used for philanthropy, coming back and taking care of people, right? It's a very important part of your essence and your being. And for us, that mission is generational poverty and housing, things of that sort. And we also support veterans and child sex trafficking because all of that is like people who've either done a lot for this world and are underappreciated when they get back or never had a chance in hell because of the hand they were dealt. And so our focus is with the Quattro Giving Fund, it's how do we raise charitable capital? We're actually set up to accept equity, charity, anything like that. And the more influence we have, the more we believe we can go and acquire properties and programs that will not have to make money, but get to just have the sole purpose of doing well and, and helping lift people out of that lifestyle where you can't even have a parent around because they're working three jobs just to make ends meet on whatever market rate deal they're living in. And the hardest part, I think, folks, is like there's people who make no money and people who make just enough money that they can't get help. And that's the world where you really get stuck. It's like you can't get out there because you make enough money to not qualify for any programs, but you don't make enough money to have good parental supervision at home, put clean food on the table, or even think about how to mentor your kids to get out of it because you don't know how to get out of it. So that, that went on a little bit of a soapbox here, but that's our philanthropic heart. And that's where we feel that the more real estate and the more capital we control, the more of a dent we as Quattro can put into that world. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Making the world a better place, not just taking from the vine, but actually planting seeds and watering the vine. That's right. So let's jump back into these exits because exit number seven is the, well, I guess this would be selling whole co, but you've bought more companies, right? You've bought more properties. And I assume your plan is to grow the net operating income so that you can sell those for a multiple, just like you've done with the other ones, right? That's right. And, and so this is where I, I haven't achieved Holco yet, and I'm not sure if I'm trying to. So that this is where it's unclear at this point, because we're in a unique business where we're kind of a company that owns a bunch of smaller companies, as you talked about. And so the logical thing with the goals I laid out would be to keep growing the Holco with little co's that we can buy and sell and optimize. And, and ultimately what you wind up doing, folks, is you sell your trash and you keep your cash, right? You're going you're gonna to do good with some properties that you just know, I don't want to own this thing long-term, right? You're going to make good equity and those are the ones you sell. And then you're going to have some properties where you're like, wow, this is a great asset. It's a great area of town. It, it's always, it's low headache to manage. And those are what you keep. You keep the ones that cash flow very well and are not capital intensive. And so what I envision is at, at some point in the future, the company is going to be generating the goal that we've set out to achieve. And then the question is going to be, okay, then it's like, okay, well, you kind of put it on, not autopilot, but you're not in growth mode. You're more in like one in, one out mode. And so at that point, that's where the question in my mind comes into, do we market the whole of Quattro? as for a sale to, there's always a bigger fish who's looking to acquire you. And mm -hmm. so there, there's a possibility for a massive portfolio sale, depending what our portfolio looks like. If it's all of similar gender and kind and all that kind of stuff. If our portfolio looks very different and that we have a bunch of self-storage or a bunch of mobile home parks or a bunch of, you know, apartments or whatever it is we're into, that's where you may have to like, you may have the only option to, to sell it off for chunks if you decide to do that. And so the beautiful thing about cash flowing hard assets is there is always a cash flow path or a liquidation path. And for me, I'm in it for the cash flow. I, I think that is where we want to be, but I don't know, 10 years from now when the company's doing what we said it's going to do, or maybe five, it'll be curious to see what we choose to do. But it's nice that in this structure, we have the option to keep it in cash flow, sell it as a whole co or sell it for chunks because each of the assets on their own stand on their own two feet. Beautiful situation. Maximum flexibility with a number of different 
exit strategies or exit paths. So Chad, as we wrap up, man, I love to ask winners about other winners that they spend time with. So who else should we have on the show? Oh man, that's great. So part of Team Quattro, Mo Philogene is a great person to come on. He may have already been on the show. If not, have him on. Dr. Aaron Hudson on my team is also fantastic to have on the show. Uh, really any of the Team Quattro members, if you want to get into nuts and bolts of operations and, and how to market a company and all that kind of stuff, Tammy Sutton and Kim Winland, my other two partners, the Quattro partners are amazing when you get them in person on their own microphone. But outside of that, I really, I have a buddy here in Nashville by the name of Chad King. And the uh-huh. guy is, he's with Titan Capital Group. He's a visionary. Like the, And this is one of two I'm going to give you. He has bought distressed hotels and turned them into efficient living. He's done some in short-term vacation rentals that are close to downtown Nashville. He's, of course, done apartments. He's done short-term rentals. Like the guy is just a deal junkie. And, and he's been like, it's amazing to watch his growth and what he's done in this world. He does a lot of speaking too, so he's fun on camera. And the second one, I would say another visionary who I have partnered with, a guy named Brandon Thornberry. He's a really soft-spoken guy, but like in, in our neck of the woods, especially in Chattanooga, Tennessee, there are a lot of abandoned, like big brick warehouses. We're talking like hundreds of thousands of square feet that are worth nothing because they've been like shut down cotton mills for like 50 years, right? And this guy is single-handedly like bringing back some of these cities on the Tennessee-Georgia line. Because you know, there's, there's enough growth in Chattanooga and in Dalton, which are around it, where, I, where we own property. But he has been buying these warehouses and getting them cleaned up and, and partitioned out to where they're just amazing retail space. And so he'll have steakhouses come in and, and like art studios and all sorts of stuff that has now spawned people to move back into these areas. And so like someone who is able to have that vision and not just make it a pie in the sky I think this will work, but actually like be able to go in and be successful every single time. It's super interesting what he's doing and that he's, he's, no one else out there is doing this as well as he is, in my opinion. Well, I look forward to meeting Chad and Brandon and maybe some of the other folks on the Quattro team to get them to come in and share their wisdom. Chad, you're a dream catcher, man. You have walked out of corporate and walked on up the exits and now you've got the option as you guys continue to build Hoco to either exit Hoco after having a bunch of entries and exits at the lo- lower levels where you've got these subsidiaries. And you know, we're talking big business now. I will tell you that I believe GE is one of the best in the world at mergers and acquisitions. So I think you had a head start there by working on those bit. businesses while you were in corporate. But man, I think you might be building a GE of your own with your team at Quattro. So thank you so much for sharing with the listeners today. I'm I'm sure that they got a different look at what happens with these exits, especially when you incorporate the real estate thing, because I, I think there's so many people who are curious about this asset type. Yeah, brother. And I'll leave the audience with this. I mean, look, the I'm not telling you this is easy. It's hard. It's re- and but the mindset that you have, if you can find a way to live every day, view the hard things as God's challenges to help you learn how to climb, climb the mountain. But if you think of, if you can live in a state of I'm grateful for what I had yesterday, I'm grateful for what I have today, and I'm grateful for what I'm going to have tomorrow, whether or not it's more than I have today, you'll be able to tackle those challenges that come to you and recognize them as learning opportunities and and things that make you better, not woe is me, life is hard, business is hard. So remember that and you'll go far. Love it. 
All right. To the listeners, if you're looking for some help with the exits, whether it's leaving corporate America or selling Holco, jump over to theexitparadox.com and get our white paper on the five mistakes every founder should avoid when exiting. Until the next time, your dreams should be real. We'll talk soon. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real.